0: I want you to think back to uh, earlier this week. Um, if you remember Wednesday night, we we're supposed to get this snowstorm. And we've got some young people here, some some uh, teenagers here. I want to know, were you guys praying for a snow day? Abby was, honest, good. Andrew, were you praying for snow day on, on Thursday? Drew, Josh, were you? No? I, I remember you were saying you were hoping. I remember when I was a kid. And we were supposed to have snow. And I grew up south of Erie, so we'd get like 150, inches, 200 inches of snow. We were praying. We wanted a snow day. We didn't want to go to school. Did any of you older people remember praying for snow days? Yeah, John, you're with me. We wanted those snow days. Got me to thinking, why do they even call a snow day? You see, when we lived, we lived in Montana for five years, and we never had a snow day. This was in the Rocky Mountains. We got to minus 20, minus 30 degrees. Kids walked to school, and they said, if we can start the buses, we're going to school. And we never had a snow day in all those years. And why do we have snow days? It's because the conditions are too risky, whether it's severe weather when you're walking with the wind chill and the minus temperatures or blowing snow or snow on the roads it's too risky. The conditions are too risky to risk the lives of these kids, unless, of course, you're from Montana. And it got me thinking about uh, risky activities, and I've got some here, and I want to see if you've done any of these things. What is, you've all heard of this, right? Bungee jumping. Has anybody here ever bungee jumped? Let me see the people. Anybody ever done that? My daughter has done that. She did that in, in Africa. And you know what? These people who jump, they actually pay you for the privilege of jumping. You'd have to pay me, and it would have to be quite a bit to get me to do that. That's a risky activity. What about this one? Now, you notice there's a chain on that tiger, but the distance between that dude's hand and the tiger's mouth is a lot less than the distance of that slack in that chain. That's a risky activity. Anybody know what this is called? Besides, what do they call this? Car, car surfing. Nancy's done it before. She's nodding her head back here. Yeah, car surfing. Now, <laughs> car surfing can go wrong. It can go really wrong. That's a risky activity. Anybody, uh, you know, this is not a, a, a statement on on gun rights or anything like that. But this is not how you hold a firearm. And if this lady has an optometrist, she's going to want to have him on speed dial because that scope can only go one direction when that gun is fired. That's a risky activity. You hear about this on the news. People driving into floodwaters. That's a risky activity. Here's another thing you couldn't get me to do. What is this called? Base jumping. B-A-S-E. base jumping. What is that outfit, that suit called? That, that person is wearing a wing suit, or I've also heard them called, anybody heard them called squirrel suits? They called them squirrel suits. And when I saw that picture, it got me thinking that, you know, besides that being a risky behavior, being a squirrel can be risky as well. Especially if you try to eat food on somebody's catapult on their back porch. Well, today, guess what we're going to keep talking about? We're in our Disciple-Making Leaders series, and we're going to talk about risky faith. We're going to do two parts today, and then in a couple of weeks, we're going to do part two. But We're going to continue to look at Peter, and how Peter was a disciple-making leader for Jesus, a disciple-making leader of Jesus's, and how he demonstrated this risky faith. We're going to be in the book of Matthew today, Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33. You can follow along on your Bible or on your device or on the screen. Part of the context for Matthew 14, what we're going to read today is immediately following Jesus feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. So remember that story, the feeding of the 5,000. This is right after that. Does anybody know where the feeding of the 5,000 took place? What was the name of the town where that took place? Anybody know this? The town of Bethsaida. Bethsaida is on the Sea of Galilee. And in our story today, it's going to take place on the Sea of Galilee. But it starts off, they're in Bethsaida. And you can see right here, this body of water, this river, That's the Jordan River, the upper Jordan. Bethsaida is right on the banks of it. It's elevated a little bit. And the feeding of the 5,000 took place on the other side of the Jordan. You can see it from Bethsaida, and it's on a a hillside there. Here's that hillside. This is just west of Bethsaida. And you can see on this hillside plenty of room for 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 people to sit there While Jesus fed them and taught them. Make sense? This is where things start out. In Matthew 14, verse 22, it's right after feeding of the 5,000. Let's read. Verse 22. Immediately after feeding the 5,000, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. Now, you saw where Bethsaida was. It was on the river. They would have gotten in the boat on the Jordan River, flowed south. About a quarter mile, maybe a half a mile to the delta where it reaches the Sea of Galilee. Then they would have gone on the Sea of Galilee, like they've done many times as fishermen, and they would have headed west towards Capernaum to go on ahead of Jesus. Go on ahead of him to the other side while he stayed back and dismissed the crowd. Verse 23 After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray couple questions here. Why did he send his disciples on by themselves? Why didn't he just get into the boat and go with them? Well, many times we're rereading Scripture where he got into a boat, and they knew other people. The crowds knew where he was going, and they were going to follow him. So he wanted to send his disciples on by themselves so that the crowds wouldn't follow. Why didn't he have the disciples just stay with him and walk with him to where they wanted to go? Because we're going to see that he walked on ahead. Well, if he's walking and his 12 guys are with him, All the crowd's going to know that's him. There they are. Let's keep following him. He just gave us this free bread. We like this. Let's keep hanging out with him and get more free bread from Jesus. He sends them off. He dismisses the crowd. And if you've got thousands of people there, Jesus can get everybody stand up, put his cloak over his head, and he can blend in with the crowd and just make his way anonymously to where he's going next with his disciples. Dismiss them. Verse 23 And then he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Let's go back to our map for a second. Dismisses them. They're out on the lake. Jesus walked on ahead of them over to Capernaum. He's over at Capernaum. He's praying. There, and they're out on the lake while the waves are coming up against them. This picture was taken from Bethsaida. Imagine they went down to this delta. They're on the boat going across. Jesus had walked over on the other side of this hill. Is this mountain where he would have been praying above Capernaum? There's a cave there on that hill, on that mountainside, that a lot of people think, hey, this is probably, likely supposedly where Jesus maybe was praying that night. He's praying and here's the vantage point. From that cave you can see here's on this lake it's pretty nice and calm right now but they're out on this boat trying to come to the west but the wind is blowing towards the east against them. This is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee and you can see how the winds are coming from the west blowing up waves and it would have been tough to go into those to get to where the disciples uh, were to meet Jesus at. Verse 25, during the fourth watch of the night, does anybody know what time the fourth watch of the night is? Who said that? Three o'clock? Three o'clock, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. First watch is is uh, is uh, 9 to midnight, second watch midnight to 3, third watch 3 to 6. Third watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, They were terrified. And this word for terrified means they were not just afraid. They were in great distress. It's like if a riot was taking place and things were getting to be chaos around you. Their inner life was in chaos, seeing somebody in these wind and waves walking out on on the lake. They were more afraid of Jesus than they were of the waves. It doesn't say here that they were afraid of the waves. Another point in Scripture when they were on the lake and there was a big storm, they were afraid and terrified of the waves. These guys were fishermen. They were used to waves on this lake. These were big waves. They weren't afraid of the waves. It was just hindering them from getting where they needed to go. But they were terrified of Jesus. Uh, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. And this was a loud scream, afraid of Jesus. Verse 27, But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It's me. It is I. It is I. Don't be afraid. I want you to think about this for a second. Why did Jesus tell them to take courage? Did he say, hey, take courage. These waves aren't that big. You're experienced fishermen. You've been through storms and waves like this before. Take courage. You've been through this before. He didn't say that to them. He didn't say to them, hey, take courage. It's going to be all right. You're just going to be a little bit late. You're going to get to shore eventually. Don't worry about being on time. Take courage. He said, hey, take courage. Don't be afraid. It's because it's me. I'm here with you. And when you and I face the winds of life, we can take courage, not because, you know what, this too shall pass. You'll get through it eventually. We can take courage because Jesus says, I'm right here with you. The storm might last longer than you want it to. Um, It might not go away ever, but I'm with you in this storm, in these waves. You can have courage because I'm here with you. Verse 28, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come on, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, and he walked on the water. Just like Jesus was walking on the water. And he came towards Jesus. Jesus. Verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Uh, This word afraid here is a lesser form of fear than that terrified. He was terrified of Jesus, but now he's afraid because he was beginning to sink. And then he cried out, Lord, save me. And that's the right thing to do. When you're sinking in life, cry out to the Lord. Not say, Lord, why me? But Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Verse 31, Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, and he caught him. And he said, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And I want to point out, here's this word faith. Today we're talking about risky faith. And we can criticize Peter. Peter, you have little faith. But I'm telling you what, he had more faith than those 11 other guys in the boat. They were boat huggers. Peter was a water walker. He might have had little faith, but it was more faith than what they had. It was a risky faith to step out of that boat onto the waves and the rough sea. Those guys saw Jesus' work. Peter experienced Jesus' work, even with that little risky faith. Verse 32, When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat, they worshipped him. They worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And This is a huge thing here. To worship him, Because the Ten Commandments said, you shall have no other God before me. And they were acknowledging for the first time that Jesus was God. Truly you are the Son of God. A few weeks ago we saw in John 21, they called him Lord. After Jesus rose from the dead, they recognized he was the Son of God. A couple weeks after that, in Matthew 16, they said, truly you are the Son of God. But this is the first time. Here in Matthew 14, that they recognized that Jesus was not just the Messiah come to redeem them, but it was a different, deeper redeeming that he indeed was God, and they worshipped him. We're going to spend um, a little bit of time today just examining what does this risky faith look like. Just how exactly do each one of us step out, literally, like Peter stepped out of the boat, step out in risky faith. And then we're going to spend a little bit more time looking at some, like, four specific ways that we can do that, that we can practically step out in this faith. And the first thing, the first step to having risky faith is to not be overcome by fear. In verse 27, Jesus said, hey, take courage. Don't be afraid. Now, fear, fear is not a choice. Fear just is. We can't control whether we are afraid or or not. It's an emotion. But I can control how do I respond to that fear. My response to that fear, that is a choice. I can respond by just giving up and being paralyzed by that fear, being overcome by that fear, saying you know being in dismay because of that fear. Eleven of those disciples were overcome by fear. Or, you can have courage like Peter did. You can keep going. You can get out of the boat. We're talking about disciple-making leaders, and, and, and some of you all in this room, would say, yeah, I'm, I'm a leader in, in different aspects, leader in my family, leader in a business, leader on the job, leader in the community, leaders in different ways. I think all of us can be uh, aspire to be leaders, and, and as leaders, there are fears that we face. One of them is the fear of criticism. I'm afraid that people won't like the decisions I make, and that can paralyze me making the right decision or making any decision at all. I can also fear rejection. People won't like me because of the truth that I have to say and that can keep me from speaking the truth. As a leader, you can fear making a mistake. This is one of mine as a leader. I can fear making a mistake because my decisions affect other people and I don't want to mess things up for other people. I don't want to have regrets and that can can hinder me from making a decision. Maybe as a leader, sometimes we have to adjust course and tweak the direction. Same vision, same mission from the Lord, but adjust course. And we can be afraid, and that can keep us, uh, make a decision too soon, make a decision too late. But Jesus says to take courage as a leader. Courage is not the absence of fear. In fact, you can't have courage unless fear is present. Courage over what? Unless there's fear there. But courage, then, is the choice to move forward and make a decision with confidence despite the fact that there is fear there. Now, some of you all are leaders as a coach um, in business, um, in parenting, in your job. You're a leader, and our confidence in those leadership roles can be based on experience in my past experience I've learned from my experiences I can make this decision based on that experience I can make this decision based on my education that I've received I can make this this decision based on wisdom that I've received or good advice that I've received. these things give confidence to making a decision but with Peter the confidence that he received was that Jesus was with him that I am here. I will guide you. I will take care of you. I am with you in the open seas in this storm. And I just need to obey him. I step out in risky faith by just simply obeying Jesus. The courage here from Peter came from Jesus. He said in verse 29, come on out here. Step out of the boat. Let's go. I want to point out, There's a difference between risky faith and reckless faith. Peter's step of faith was risky because Jesus told him to do it. It was something he's never done before. He was afraid of doing, but Jesus told him to do it. That's risky. What's reckless is if Peter were just to jump out of the boat without asking permission, without Jesus telling him to do it, not in obedience. That's reckless, just taking a step out there and trying to do it uh, without Jesus' instruction, without Jesus' uh, approval to, um, to do that. Uh, simple example. I was working with this one youth pastor about 20 years ago. And this youth pastor, uh, we had a prayer time together, about six youth pastors. He came and said, Hey guys, the Lord really messed me up last night. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? Tell me what happened. Well, I couldn't sleep. And in the middle of the night, I kept getting this vision from God and this vision was that I needed to start at every school in the United States. I needed to have a prayer group meet at the flagpole every morning before school, getting these prayer groups going. I'm like, okay, you sure that the Lord told you to do that? Yep, I'm sure. How do you know that? I mean, you're up in the middle of the night. you sure you just didn't eat too many M&Ms before going to bed? Yet pizza too late with the youth group before going to bed? Because that can cause you to stay away. No, no, no. And, and he goes, that's what I'm, in fact, I'm supposed to resign from my youth pastor job and step out in faith and just start these flagpole things across the country. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus tell you as a youth pastor, as a pastor, that our job is to make disciples? He goes, well, what I do is I'll meet with kids and just tell them, go to the flagpole. What if someone gets saved? What do you do? How do you disciple them? I just tell them, go to the flagpole. That's what you do. That was a reckless faith. It wasn't based on God's word. It was just I had this dream in the middle of the night. When I couldn't sleep I coach a couple different sports teams Basketball, baseball team And I tell our boys on our team um, You know what, go home and read your Bible tonight Because God wants to speak to you God has something to say to you every day And you hear it by opening up His Word And reading it So go home, open His Word and read it And listen to what He says to you God wants to speak In order to have risky faith in order to obey Jesus, I need to know what Jesus is telling me to do, and that's going to come from his word, not from his dream, or a dream in the middle of the night I want to show you a picture of a friend of mine Uh, this is Mike, uh, this is Jody, this is their four kids Uh, this is Ramey, and I can't remember the girl's name, but Ramey was uh, a foster child that they adopted and then this little girl was a foster child that they adopted and then, praise God, they were able to have two children of their own, um Four weeks from today, Mike will be with me in Israel. He's going on our on our uh, sunlight study tour. He's traveling with me. Uh, he's going to be there for ten days with me, studying the life of Christ. Uh, I've been coaching Mike in ministry. He's a young pastor, early 30s. He's over about an hour and a half away, and coaching him in ministry, how to make disciples like Jesus in ministry. Uh, last October, we were sitting together in Shake Shack by REI on the east side of Cleveland. Halfway for us to meet. And we're having a meeting there, eating some good burgers, and coaching Mike in ministry. And while we were there, he got a phone call. It was from an attorney in South Carolina telling Mike that his sister, who he hasn't seen in years, is in prison. And that she has, I can't remember, either three or four children of her own. And this attorney said, we would like you to take custody of these children. We don't want them to go into the system. We don't want them split up. Um, you're the closest relative. Would you be willing to take these three or four kids into your home? Mike and his wife Jody prayed, sought the Lord, looked in his word, and said, You care about the orphans. You care about the widows. We've got to take these kids. problem is they have a three-bedroom house with four kids already. And so they said, Okay, we need to add on to our house in order to have enough room for these kids. We have a minivan with seats for seven. We're now going to have seven or eight kids plus two adults. We need to get a transit van to transport everybody. So they started doing fundraisers, did GoFundMe, stepping out in risky faith, simply obeying Jesus, and he is providing for them. I was messaging with him this last week, and he was on his way back from South Carolina picking up these kids. Why are they doing all that? Simply stepping out in faith, simply obeying Jesus, taking risky faith. And I love what Luke 11:28 says. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. This is simple. We're blessed if we just hear the word of God and obey it. And we're not going to hear it unless we open it up and read it and listen to him. Listen to him because he's got something to say. He wants to speak to us. Risky faith starts with hearing Jesus say, come on out, and then simply obeying him getting out of that boat. And finally, um, besides not being overcome by fear, simply obeying Jesus, I have to diligently depend on Jesus. Remember verses 30 and 31, when Peter saw the wind, his eyes were on the storm. They weren't on Jesus. He began to sink. He began to doubt. His risky faith was undermined by doubt. And what did he doubt? Did he doubt himself? Man, I can't walk on water. Kerplunk. Did he doubt Jesus? Oh, maybe Jesus isn't strong enough to keep me above water. Kerplunk. We don't know for sure exactly what he doubted, himself or Jesus, but we do know for sure that he took his eyes off of Jesus. We do know for sure that if I'm going to take a step of risky faith, if you are, we have to diligently depend on Jesus, not my own abilities, not my own skills, not my own experience, not my own willpower, not my own intelligence. For spiritual maturity, but depending on Him, looking to Him, desperately asking Jesus for strength, for endurance, for wisdom. If I'm going to do His work, I need His help with my eyes on Him. And if I don't, I sink, just like Peter did. Well, that's all pretty simple, this risky faith. What does it look like? Overcome with courage, simply obey Jesus. Diligently depend on Jesus. Well, let's get practical. How can you and I? What are some areas in our lives, personally and here at the church, where we can take this risky faith step? I'm going to suggest four things. First thing is in the area of prayer. Now, being a person of prayer, personally, individually, at home, on my own, throughout my life, that doesn't require a lot of risk just needs 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes a day of spending time alone in prayer, praying for each other, praying for different needs, praying through Scripture as you're reading it. It doesn't require a lot of faith. It just requires the right habits, the right priorities, and obedience to Jesus of being a person of prayer. But publicly, when we gather together as a church to pray publicly, that might be risky for you. You might say, you know what? I'm kind of an introvert. I don't want to pray out loud in front of people. What if I mess up when I pray? And just want to tell you, we can't mess up when we pray. We're talking to the Lord. He understands. You know, we're just trying to let the words reflect what's going on in the heart. So no one's going to make fun of you if you feel like you messed up when you pray. When we pray for each other out loud... It's an expression of love. It's an an obedience to the Lord to pray for one another. Um, It's being God-centered and other-centered and not self-centered when we pray for each other. So I can have courage to overcome the fear of praying out loud um, if I don't feel like I know what to say or I'm not eloquent enough. Um, It's just I'm talking to God as if I'm alone and as if no one else is in the room, just making it genuine making it real. Uh, That's a step towards maturity and leadership and risky faith by just being able to pray for each other. And I want to thank those of you guys who do that, who pray out loud and and even sharing out loud different needs and testimonies. That's a step of faith a lot of times for a lot of people. Uh, There's another practical way to exercise risky faith, and that's in the area of hospitality. This can be especially risky if Like I said before, you're an introvert. You can say, you know, my my personality, um, or I I lack comfortability. It's tough for me to reach out to other people. But that doesn't excuse me from obeying Jesus when he says to have hospitality one for another. We have hospitality here at church when we welcome each other, and especially when we welcome each other with warmth, with love. With listening ears when we're talking to people and asking them how they're doing and telling me about your week, when it's more than just hi, how you doing? but There's a warmth and a genuineness to it. I love seeing people stay late to visit after church. Now, a lot of y'all don't get here early to visit. And that's okay. But it's neat when people stay late and share with each other and visit with each other. And Everybody's always welcome to come early, stay late, because we want to have hospitality. And it's risky sometimes for you have hospitality, But it's not just at church, but outside the church as well. It was really neat a few weeks ago. Um, some of you guys know uh, Jenny White. She's not here today. She was at her son's birthday party late last night. And you know how it is when, when our older folks get out partying late. Yeah, it's tough to get rolling in the morning. When Jenny, who's a widow, met Lois, who's a widow, and they started talking with each other, the next thing you know they're inviting each other to go out to eat together. That's hospitality outside About eight years ago, I went through a job loss, and it was a low time for Stacy and me. And Rich and Christine, they invited us out to dinner, took us out to dinner, treated us to dinner. That was a night when when Rich and I were old guys, and we need glasses to see the menu. And so we always tease him now because he didn't have his reading glasses. And I think he borrowed some. I can't remember exactly if he borrowed some from the restaurant because they had extras that people left behind. Then Rich stole them. I can't remember. That could be a story. But they showed great hospitality and warmth to us when they did that. Making a meal for other people is hospitality. When people move from one one house to another, that's a way to show hospitality. At our church in Montana, we were always helping people move. And I remember one guy, a man and a wife and his little daughter, we helped them move into a really small apartment. And this guy, his name was Bob. We, We were talking about hospitality. He said, you know what, I can't show hospitality because our house is too small. We can't have guests there. And our associate pastor at the time, a guy named Chip, said, Bob, you don't have to have people over your house to have hospitality. Invite them out to dinner. We can have hospitality at McDonald's. Let's go out this week and meet at McDonald's. We can figure this out. It's risky to be hospitable, especially if you're that that introvert. But Jesus did it. He told us to do it. And we can exercise faith take a step of risky faith, and if we do it, we'll be rewarded for it. Another practical way that we can exercise obedient, risky faith is in generosity. Now, if I'm controlled by fear, I'll want to hold on to my money, my resources, my time, my gifts. It's mine. I need them for myself, for my own enjoyment. I hold on to them. But if I courageously obey Jesus, if I trust him, it overcomes that fear. I have risky faith because it's his money. It's his resources. It is his time. It's his gifts. This is his life. I belong to him, and I want to live generously and give my life away because that's what Jesus did. He lived generously and gave his life away. Jesus demonstrated extreme generosity to us through salvation. Which is completely undeserved. The home that I have, the job that I have, the clothes that I wear, the car that I drive, the church family who loves me, the life that God's given me is an act of generosity. It's from Him. So we want to be generous people, walking like Jesus, obeying Jesus, being a blessing to other people the way that God has used other people to be a blessing to me. And it might be fearful. You might be thinking, what if I give too much away and I don't have enough left over for myself? It's simply, don't give more away than he told me to, but don't give less away than he told me to. That's kind of where faith comes in, that he told me to be generous and give away, trusting that he's going to provide my needs even after I give away what he told me to give away. A great way to demonstrate generosity is when you go out to eat and you get your bill and you get to leave a tip that's a great way to be generous especially if you pray before your meal and your server sees you praying before the meal they know something about you or even before you pray you tell your server hey you know what? we're going to pray for our food and thank God for it is there anything we can pray for you about and then pray for them they don't have to be with you when you pray, but just offer to pray that. And then after you do that, if you leave a generous tip, that's a great testimony about Christ to those people. Here's some nice tips. If you were a server, wouldn't you like this? $8 bill, $100 tip. That's a pretty stinking generous tip. What about this one? $50, 74 cent bill, $2,000 tip. And I love this. Tips for Jesus is what they wrote on there. There's a whole Instagram thing of tips for Jesus. He's an even better one. $87 meal, $3,000 tip, tips for Jesus. That's generosity. That is is, um, a great way to make Jesus known and make Jesus famous. I've been on the receiving end of people's generosity. Just a, a couple weeks ago, I was training in California, and after I got done training, a, a gentleman walked up to me and he gave me an envelope, uh, opened that envelope. There's a $100 bill in that envelope. Amazing. Didn't ask for it, anything. Just He said, God told me to give this to you, taking a step of, of faith, risky faith. Uh, I used to play basketball a lot when I was younger, and I was playing in this one league, and a guy from my church came up to me and said, hey, how many how many points do you average in a game? I'm like, oh, I don't know, three, four, five points maybe. My brother said, no, he averages about 30 points really. He averages about 30 points a game. And he's like, for real? I'm like, honestly, yeah, yeah, pretty much. He said, if you score 30 points tomorrow night, I've got a prize for you. So I played this game, and after the game, they looked at the box score, 28. Only 28 points. So so he comes up to me at church, hey, how many points did you score? I'm like, Just just 28 points. I didn't reach the 30. Well, here's your consolation prize. Open the envelope later. $500 just for failing to reach my average in basketball. That was generosity. I've been on the receiving end of generosity, and it feels good to be blessed. You can help other people feel good and feel blessed, and I'm so thankful for that. Um, Stacy and I have not just been on the receiving end. We've also been on the giving end. Of generosity. And guess what? It feels equally good, even better, to be generous and to give away to people. And when I'm generous to people, it doesn't just feel good inside, but it grows my faith. Taking that step of risky facing, God told me to give this to you, trusting that God's going to provide that whole difference of what I give up. He's going to meet my needs and provide my needs. I love this from Proverbs 11 24 and 25. Give freely and become more wealthy. That's how it works. If I freely give, I can freely receive. But if you be stingy, you lose everything. The more I hold on to things, the less I can receive things. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. This is how it works in God's economy. That's how it works in life. That's how it works in church, too. And I want to thank people for supporting the work of this church by giving generously and obediently for the work of this church. You've seen our budget, it's sitting back there. We've got a pretty humble budget. We've got a pretty meager budget. But God provides through everybody's generosity. But it still requires faith to give and to give generously and to give obediently. What does New Testament giving look like? First of all, it's generous. Our giving is generous. It's supposed to be joyful. Not begrudgingly, but joyful. It's supposed to be planned out. Prayerfully planned out. I'm not just opening my wallet, throwing something in. It's like, what is God telling me to do? It's planned out. It's also sacrificial. It requires faith. That's New Testament giving. Generosity, in a very practical way, not reckless, but risky, is to, uh, is to give. And finally, one more thing to have risky faith as a disciple of Christ, disciple maker for Christ, is this word evangelism. What does that mean? It simply means telling other people the good news of what Jesus did for you, that he saved you, that he forgave you. It's just letting people know. That's called evangelism. And Peter did this shortly after this encounter in Matthew 14, In Luke 1, we're told that Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God. He was evangelizing. He was sharing the gospel. And the 12 were with him. One of those 12 was Peter. His faith grew when he stepped out of that boat, and his faith was growing even more when they stepped into those towns sharing the gospel. And then this is what Peter said 30 years later. (coughs) He said, In your heart set apart Christ as Lord, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In other words, tell people about Christ. He's the reason for the hope that you have. Tell them. But do this do this with gentleness and respect. How do we tell people about the hope that we have? Like we did earlier today, we shared some testimonies about what God did. We just tell people, this is what God did for me. I grew up in a house where we went to church. At the age of nine, I realized I had a problem called sin. We all have it, but I realized that I did. I thought of the time that I lied many times. I thought of the time that I stole. I stole a Batman magnet going through the store. It was there on the counter. I forget what it cost, 79 cents. We're going through the checkout line, snatch, in the pocket. Boy, did I feel guilty. Sat in my dresser. I couldn't even enjoy the stupid thing because I stole it. I realize that I have a problem called sin and there's only one solution and that's Jesus. And if I believed in him and him alone to forgive my sin, he would do it and give me eternal life in heaven. Since then, my life hasn't been easy. I've made plenty of mistakes, but Jesus has helped me. He's grown me. He's forgiven me. And I have the hope of eternal life in heaven through him. That's my story. It took me about 90 seconds to share my story. You can share your story and take the risky step of faith of evangelism by sharing your story. You can also, here's another tool. We've gone over this before. I like calling it the bridge. It's memorizing a verse, Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, and it's through Jesus. Because of sin in my life, I have no hope. Because of sin in my life, my heart is dark. But through Jesus, I can have forgiveness and the gift of eternal life just by believing in Him. You can drew this on a napkin in a restaurant. You can draw this on a piece of paper. You can share the gospel, the good news, with other people. It takes risky faith because I can fear being rejected. I can fear being made fun of. I can fear not having the right words to say. But I can have courage because Jesus is with me as I take this risky step of faith. I want to challenge each of us to take that risky step of faith this week. Let's pray. Let's show hospitality. Let's be generous. And let's look to share the good news to evangelize. How do we do that? How about memorizing this week that Luke 11:28, 28 Blessed are those who hear the word of God And obey it. That's our Bible verse. And then this week, read Acts 3 through 8. Seeing how Peter took more risky steps of obedience and how God came through for him in Acts 3 through 8. And then ask God to give you the faith of Peter to obey Jesus and share Christ with lost friends. And then in two weeks, next week, Uh, Robert Brooks, the chaplain for the Browns, is going to be preaching. I have to preach at another church in Ohio next week, but he's going to be here preaching. And then two weeks from today, we're actually going to be in Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at part 2 of Risky Faith, just some things that Peter did for that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for this example of of our boy Peter, who was your leader. He had... He fell down but got back up. He was a shepherd to your sheep. You helped build the church through him and with him. And we saw last week he was a target of the enemy. But you protected and you sustained and you provided. And this week, Lord, as he took a risky step of faith and still stumbled and fell in that, you grew him through that, Lord. And we pray that you would grow us the same way, that we would be people who are known not for reckless faith, not for no faith, but a risky, obedient faith that people would know that person, they've got courage because Jesus is with them and they're doing the things that he told them to do. I pray, God, that would be each one of our life, that we would not waste this life, Father, playing it safe in the boat, that we would, that we would take risks in this life obeying you, seeing you at work, bringing honor and glory to you and reaching other people for you. That's our prayer, God. We want to know Jesus, follow Jesus, serve Jesus, and obey Jesus, and have everything be about you. And like those guys in the boat, we want to worship Jesus because you are God. We want our friends to worship Jesus too because they know he's God as well. So use us to do that. We pray, Father, through Jesus. Amen.